0: Welcome to season five of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr.
1: Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is now December of 2021, December the 2nd. Here we go. Last month of 2021, we made it through, folks. Look at markets. It's been a great year if you've been an investor. It's been a little shaky in the past couple of weeks. And the past couple of days have been some of the most confusing, at least to me, that we've had all year. Just just take a look at yesterday. We had about an 800-point day yesterday on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Stocks were up around 300 points, recovering. Everything seemed to be on track for the bounce-back trade. Then Omicron comes out. And, and, and Omicron comes out as news. I'm not sure why it was news. They kept telling us it was going to come, and we knew it was going to come, and then they said, okay, it's here, and it came, and, and stocks went down. I'm not sure that was it, though. We also had uh, our friends, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Mrs. Yellen, and Chairman Powell had been testifying about inflation and the economy, and Mrs. Yellen says that this Build Back Better bill is gonna be fabulous because it's all gonna be paid for 100%. Sure it is, folks, sure it is. And and I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you as well. Uh, She should have offered that. Maybe if she'd sold the Brooklyn Bridge, she could have paid for some of this stuff because that might be the only way she pays for some of this stuff. And then I think perhaps the markets were listening a little bit more to Chairman Powell. Something midday when that market shifted, uh, we saw oil, Uh, go down to almost $65 a barrel, which is where it is this morning. We saw uh, the 10-year Treasury drop down in the uh, lower 140s, 141 on the 10-year Treasury. Uh, This is not what inflationary markets look like. What do you make of all of this coming into the year end? Our first segment, we're going to go to Jim Urio, of course, out at the Chicago Exchange. Uh, Second, we're gonna get to Dan Mahaffey about whatever is happening in Washington. And there's a big deal happening in Washington. Will the Republicans now lose their advantage over two issues? And the issues are whether they're gonna fight this uh, spending um, uh, cap, the the debt cap and the refinancing uh, or the certification here uh, to keep the government operating, uh, number one. And number two, will they make a strong move uh, against abortion, this case in the Supreme Court right now, that will lose the left-leaning se- center here and uh, put their chances for November uh, in more peril. Right now, the Republicans, the Republicans to lose. Um, they can lose it, we'll see. And then finally, we're gonna cover real estate with two experts, a commercial real estate and a residential real estate expert in our segment three. Take a look at some of those trends. Do you think that the prices for residential real estate are gonna to continue to rise? We're gonna find out. And what about office real estate? Uh, we're gonna talk about that in segment three. Right now, your fan favorite, BarCast fan favorite, Jim Murio. Good morning, Jim.
2: Thank you for having me, Michael.
1: So glad you're here, pal. So glad you're here. So you heard my intro, you had to endure all of that. And I thank you for doing that. Uh, tell me what you think um, about what markets are doing here and what they did yesterday. and And we also broke through some levels of support, uh, particularly on the Dow. so so this, here's the the thing that I've been focused on is
2: that back on the twenty second, the stocks made a higher high and a lower low. And then Tuesday, the 23rd, they traded lower, confirming that move. Now, this was a couple of days before the the break of the the news of the Omicron variant. Um, so to me, it was the market was engaged in risk up anyway. And also junk bonds tanked. Uh, pr- similar to that same day too. So the risk off signal was given before Omicron came out. Omicron was just another thing that gave it a little push. And I don't think anyone I talked to anecdotally is particularly terrified of Omicron, but I do think there's a fear that the government response will be another big economic headwind and you know perhaps a, a, another unneeded one. I do think we're worried about tightening. Now Jerome Powell came out and talked about, um, you
3: know,
2: he, he talked a little more hawkish than people expected at his uh, testimony before Congress. Now, that is a real worry. From the beginning, I thought the S&Ps, the, my first target was a 4.5% break down to 4,500. We hit that yesterday. Now, this is the hardest time to trade then because now I want to see, I got out of some of my shorts and I want to see if that level can hold. So I need to see a, a pattern there which suggests some stability. And right now, I think it's too early to tell that. But anyway, the, the point is, is that is that volatility was gone for too long. Every once in a while, it needs to come back and slap people and remind them that these games have risk. And if that's not a bad thing at all. When you see things that were happening in meme stocks and cryptocurrencies, you, we, we know, you and I have been around long enough, sadly, to know that we've seen this before. And when people forget about risk, then uh, occasionally it comes back and has to knock them one. And I, I think it's a good thing, ultimately.
1: What do you think about the Fed being a, sounding a little more hawkish? I mean, uh, to me, I felt like it was about time. I mean, there's something encouraging there where the, if the Fed is seeing this kind of strength, and now we're hearing that the Fed is is actually going to do something. I feel like poor Jay Powell gets gets catches hell either way. You know, he doesn't do enough, and he catches hell. He says, "Okay, I'm going to do something," and he catches hell. I mean, where's the win? But but uh, if you if you if you parse through whether he's popular or whether he's unpopular, and go to what he's saying and doing, it's kind of an encouraging message about the economy, isn't it? There's no question about it. Now for J Powell,
2: you said it's encouraging. Yeah. This the best time for him to have started to flip more hawkish was about six to eight months ago. Yeah, the second best true. time. The second best time is right now. Now just to think about the stupidity of what was going on over the last eight months. It was is inarguable that the housing sector was one of the hottest sectors anywhere, just like pricing people out left and right. And at the same time, they continued to buy 40 billion mortgage backs a month to support that market. for, And it continued for eight or nine months. Now, the interesting thing here is you mentioned that he sounded hawkish. Sounding hawkish is different than actually being hawkish. We've seen them show their cards before. In August 2014, they uh, they came out and said, yeah, yeah we're going to be hawkish. I think it was James Bullitt. The stock market cracked 8% in a matter of about two or three days. And the next speech was like, yeah, the, the case for, for uh, tightening has has gone away a little bit. And the only thing that had changed is the stock market crack. So it's one thing when you're 4.5% off all-time highs to talk about being hawkish, let's see what happens if, and I'm not saying it will, if we crack 10 to 12% lower, let's see how hawkish they sound then. You think
1: that they might back off again? You don't think that he means it and he's going to go through this time? No, I do
2: think right now he intends to. I just think okay. things could change it. And if you, know, you listen to people like Lacey Hunt, and even, you know, Kathy Wood, and, and they talk about the next period being more deflationary than inflationary. And, and I don't know if this, if lockdowns and travel restrictions was part of their calculus, but if those things begin to happen in the next couple of months, we've already seen some meaningful um, corrections or, or trade or weaker prices in a lot of the most important commodities. So do I think, I put it at about a 40% chance, 40 to 60, let's say, that he continues down this path of being hawkish, but things could change if we have another leg down in the stocks. If that makes sense.
1: Is there been a psyche change for the market yet? Have we changed our attitude from bullish to bearish? Are we on, Are we teetering, or is this just short-term ner- nerves?
2: Yeah, it feels just like short-term nerves to me, and that's why, like when it started, I said four and a half, and I don't, I didn't, and don't think it's the big one, whatever big one means, but we've seen that a couple of times in our careers. I don't think that's what's happening now because I didn't see just this massive leveraged buildup in particularly in, in stocks. It could exist other places, but I didn't see it particularly in stocks. So I think, you know, four and a half percent seems good. And again, I'm starting to look for patterns to buy it. But if we crack through 4,500 in the next day or two, um, then I think that 4,300 could be the next move. And then we're talking about something that's, you know, closer to 10 percent, and, uh, and, you know, I'd be fine with that. I actually think, I, okay, I'm going to go on a little bit of and I'm sorry about that. But so the, the Fed and the federal government propping up asset prices over the last two years, you've seen, yes. this is the work from Joe Brussels coming at RSM was that, um, that 3.2 million extra baby boomers have retired and been taken out of the workforce over the last year and a half that otherwise wouldn't have been predicted. All of this Fed money propping up asset prices creates these creates these weird realities that we live in, where these people now, their expectations for future gains on their stocks has caused this confidence. And again, we know we, know we barbelled the economy and the rich got richer. Um, all of these are problems with assets that unrealistically rally. And I don't think the Fed is done propping these up, but I like to see some corrections to remind people of risk. Do you think we get to a 10% correction here? So that w- I think we'll know before the week's over. I think 4,500 in the S&P is a good line in the sand. It was respected the first time it was touched. It was actually just respected again in the last about 10 minutes. It traded down to about 05, and now it's bounced back up to 45.22. I think that's my line in the sand. If we trade below 4,490, then I think 4,300 is in the cards. And again, I, have, I don't have the, the, my calculator in front of me, but I think that's pretty close to 10%.
1: If you go through that and you think we're on the way to 4,300, are you all in at 4,300? Do you come back in strong? You know, I never like
2: to to make that commitment ahead of time because I want to see how those levels <laughs> react. But I definitely like, even, even yesterday late, I sold 4,500 puts to buy, and again, it was to It was to take off some of my short hedges. It wasn't exactly like I'm drawing a line in the sand to buy it at 4,500, but I'll probably do the same at 4,300 and not, you know, all in is, you know, traders who I know who are pushing all their chips on the table don't last very long. There's old traders and there's old traders.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. You're making me worry about the Santa Claus rally here this year. Where's my Santa Claus rally? Have I already had it? I, I think we already
2: had it. I don't. You know, the the, the things like sell and May and go away, the Santa Claus rally, and I know they're real and I know seasonals are real, but I also know that if we start talking about them too much then they tend not to happen. My guess is that we, we probably already had it, but again, I, I don't mean to sound bearish. I mean, to sound that we're at this, this big inflection point at 4,500, and this is going to be a square off for the next two days. And I hope it's not a cop-out answer, you know, not write it down in pen, but I want to see who's stronger within the next day and a half before we go. But either way, I don't think it's the big one. And I think if it does crack 10%, for me, in my investment accounts, it's certainly going to be a buying opportunity, but again, not an all in trade opportunity.
1: When you talk about the big one, what do you mean the big one? You know, when we we look back,
2: guys our age, we saw the tech bubble burst, we saw the real estate bubble burst, we saw these huge, huge unwinds of leverage positions in stocks and inflated assets. Um, I think that every time now we begin a correction in the back of older investors head, there's like, can this happen again? And I'm saying I don't believe it, it, it is can happen again, because I don't believe there's the irresponsible leverage that is built up in assets that we saw in 06 and we saw in whenever the tech bubble was around the turn of the century.
1: The other thing, of course, when we when we look back at 06, 07, 08, 09, we call it the great financial crisis, the GFC, because it was largely caused by a lot of over leverage in the financial markets and the banks and the Goldman Sachs and others who were leveraged at 35 and 40 to 1. 35 and 40 to 1. Do that math, ladies and gentlemen. Take your mortgage. uh, Take your take your mortgage. Or take your equity in your home and multiply it by thirty-five or forty, and see how much money you have to play with. It's a lot. Now, if it goes against you, you've just lost all of your equity when you've leveraged at thirty-five to forty to one. Uh, and if you lose more than that, how much more can you lose than all of your equity? Uh, I mean, absolutely. You, you know, yes. uh, whose equity have you lost? You've lost the bank's equity. Uh, so uh, we've curtailed that, and 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 leverage ratios are much much lower. Um, You know, we've seen these pullbacks, Jim, in recent years, kind of a, you get into January, February, uh, you get past that January earnings season reports, you get to February, and everybody who's got all of their big pent-up capital gains that they didn't want to take at the end of the previous year come into some selling, it wouldn't take a lot of weakness for us to see that 10% correction somewhere in the end of January, beginning of February is, is what's on my mind. And that's what I think every year at this time. I, is this year more vulnerable than others? Or do you think we could, as we pull forward the Santa Claus rally, we're also gonna pull forward the uh, February correction?
2: I think it is a little more vulnerable than others, just by virtue of the fact that it's been kind of a one-way trade, with that, you know, the 36% blip right when the, um, you know, when the pandemic hit back in in early 2020. But I think it is, it is slightly more vulnerable because vulnerable we're coming in at all time highs. Um, I think when you talked about this 10% correction too, and I hope you're on the same page as me as I think of it as a good thing. I think it was a good thing to, uh, to, to bring volatility levels back to normal. I'm talking about, you know, implied levels and options and, you know, um, and bring, prices back down in line a little bit and remind people that there's risk and give some buying opportunities. So I think this is a fine and healthy corrective phase and we'll know, I'll know that it's a corrective phase when it feels like it's not a corrective phase. That's just kind of always, it's the George Costanza method. When everything's in your mind says sell, it's probably the best time to buy.
1: Yeah, if it feels awful, do it. That's, that's been Farr's rule for a long time. If it feels Amen. bad, forget everything you learned in the 70s. You know, the 70s, they taught us if it feels good, do it. Not if you're an investor. If you're an investor, <laughs> if it feels bad, do it. You'll make a lot more money. Finally, Jim, we've got to go. Tell Fred and Ethel, they're looking at their portfolios. They're hearing about a pullback. They're hearing J. Powell. They're all looking at all of this volatility. Tell them what they should be thinking.
2: Well, here's what I'm thinking, and I always think this, and this is for the investment accounts, is that, you know, when you have a great year, there are two types of people, those, those who let it ride and there are those who rebalance. The ones who rebalance, they seem to last a lot longer, in my opinion. So if, you're, if your risk tolerance was for 50% stocks and 50%, you know, I don't even know what bonds are anymore when they don't even give, any, give you any money, but 50% cash and all of a sudden your stocks explode. I think it's time to rebalance. Now, it's much easier to do in, in, tax, in tax deferred accounts than it is to do and take capital gains. Nobody likes taking capital gains, but you gotta, you got to assess and decide if you're too far over your skis. And that's what I do every year around this
1: time. Jim Urio is managing director of TJM Institutional Services, a veteran futures and options trader uh, from the really the best voice at the CME uh, and our great friend on the forecast. Thank you, Jim, so much. Thank you, Michael. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, the senior political analyst on the Farcast. See if he can explain to us uh, if the Republicans are once again gearing up to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory when we come back on the Farcast. Please stay with us.
0: Michael Farr and the Farrcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission At heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the FARcast and your host, Michael Farr. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. We are back.
1: Joining me now, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and his most important, glorious title, Senior Political Analyst on the Farcast. Now in Season 5. How about that? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for sharing this on your social media. Please keep that up. And Dan, good morning. What in? God's name, are they doing in Washington this week? I liked it so much when they were away for Thanksgiving.
3: Yeah, it was so great when it was quiet here and they were all stuffing themselves with turkey and not worried about that. But we're here uh, back in Washington. they stuff us
1: with turkey, yeah. Well, yeah, and
3: the, and the December train wreck is living up to its name. I think we, we saw this uh, whole laundry list of things that they needed to get done going into the end of the year. Uh, and here we are. It's looking like if, if we don't have an 11th hour deal to keep government open, we probably will have a little bit of a, a weekend shutdown, uh, a minimal shutdown. Look, there, there's agreement. Neither side. You
1: think you wait. You hang on. You think we're going to have a shutdown? I mean, I, I knew Republicans were fighting the vaccine mandate, but you you think that we're they're going to Republicans are going to stand tight and it's going to shut down anyway? No, I don't,
3: I don't think they're going to move as so much on the vaccine mandate. They've backed away on that. Uh, I think the optics Democrats of, have
1: backed away on the
3: no, the, the Republicans mandate. have backed away on the opposition as strictly to the okay. vaccine mandate. They right. backed away on forcing it. I think they understood the optics, uh, particularly with the new variant, uh, no one wins in a government shutdown, but they would be seen as forcing it for their as very the vocal. Guys, yes. Yeah. They would be seen on this. Uh, and that said, it still has delayed this process where, look, if government stays open, it shuts down on Friday night. If it stays open, it's because they've figured out an 11th hour package to, to move through to get it through. But no one as of right now has seen tax. No one has seen uh, a plan for how long it would be open. They are negotiating. So there will be an 11th hour thing if that, if that keeps it open. If not, you're looking at what we call one of those weekend shutdowns where we've had them in the past, the, the government reopens by Monday. There's not too much of the disruption to, to you don't see the, the footage of the national parks getting roped off and stuff like that. Uh, but you still have a sense of, look, this is how we run the business of our country. And we can't even uh, get that organized and across the finish line.
1: Major league baseball has that lockout this morning for the players. It's first time in a lot of years. That never makes management look good, but it does tell you what's going on a little bit in labor markets and and, uh, uh, what um, organized labor can do in an environment when unemployment is really low, there's a little bit of leverage coming back there. But no, management never looks good when ball players can't play ball. Uh, Right, and uh, And it's
3: the same with our politicians. Same with our politicians, yeah. Yeah.
1: And our parks. Okay, Dan, Uh, so we might get into this shutdown thing. And then, Coming up next uh, for your hit list, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we still have this Build Back Better bill. I was delighted to hear uh, uh, that Secretary Yellen suggest that it's all paid for. I suggested when I introduced Jim Urio this morning that um, she should as well tell you that she has a bridge in Brooklyn for sale uh, if you're going to believe that that's paid for. And in fact, if she sold you the bridge in Brooklyn, it might be one of the few ways she could pay for the Build Back Better bill.
3: Right, and I can assure you, I have zero body fat and a full head of hair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, beyond that, though, the look, the the BBB, I think the the crux of it there is still the in the Senate, and the two big things we see in the Senate right now. One, Manchin is still digging in on paid family leave. I think he understands it better than the past. Uh, but his concern with that is he's, he's basically said that if there are Republican senators behind paid family leave, uh, at which there have been senators who've talked about it, he thinks that should be pulled off to make paid family leave into a bipartisan deal so that it's something that if we are going to institute paid family leave, it's something that doesn't shift back and forth every time the Congress or administration changes.
1: That sounds like a very reasonable position. I mean, I, I gotta tell you, uh, every time I hear one of these positions out of Joe Manchin, I, sometimes I think, is he just trying to be you know, contentious or obstreperous or, or, or you know, start throw, throwing a, a blockage in the way? It, it sounds reasonable to me. It sounds like a reasonable position, is it or not?
3: it is i think in its terms of old fashioned politics i think it's very reasonable the problem is now that anything in this congress works only on a partisan basis we see very few things you know other than that the uh, infrastructure deal but that's the exception not the norm uh, and for democrats it's saying why leverage why lose the leverage of being able to put a major accomplishment uh, get that on our uh, on our uh, win win tally for this uh this cycle uh, and be able to campaign on it they don't want you know that's the the politics of it compared to the reasonableness uh and you can understand you can understand both there uh the other area though where we're also seeing distru- dispute in the senate is the salt provision uh yes, the house why? clearly mo- the house moderates clearly moved on that uh when it comes to salt uh certainly what bernie is salt? What is salt salt the state and local tax deduction State and
1: local uh, tax deductions. As yes. we've
3: talked about that, we remember with Bernie, we called it the salt in his wound because he's never <laughs> given up <laughs> on thinking that this should go, and he's the most vocal about it, saying it's a carve out for the wealthy. Uh, but there are actually other Meaning people who
1: own houses,
3: people who own houses, people who deduct their property Damn taxes. Those wealthy and,
1: people who own houses.
3: Yep, yeah, and well, it's not just uh, and it's not just him though. There's some others: Angus King from Maine, Tester from Montana. There are quite a few who see this as uh, at least in the form the the House sent it along as too much of a carve-out for the wealthy, given that you look at the SALT deduction right now, if you look at the numbers, is the second largest item uh, in that bill. So look, it does help Democrats in with dealing with moderate seats. It helps them in places like California, New York, Illinois, for sure. Uh, but it's a heavy price uh, for some of these in the Senate. And those are the two sticking points on Build Back Better uh, and unless I hear the Grinches music start playing, which says that everyone's going to be here for Christmas, I don't know if the timing on that starts to slip to next year unless they can they can figure those two issues out quickly in the Senate.
1: There was another layup. Uh we were all expecting the 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 one thing that you know that was going to be easy to get done, other than keeping the government open, which doesn't look particularly easy suddenly, was a defense spending bill. I think. Is that $680 billion? Is that what it
0: is?
3: Roughly there. And the challenge there is that there's some who actually think that that's not enough, at least on the defense side, given the uh, what we see from China and Russia and the, the threats around the world. Uh, there are also progressives who say that that's uh, far too much. Uh, still, that's something that usually is supposed to get through. The, the delay we're seeing there, uh, one, just a, a trouble again with the amendment process. And two, there's been a Uh, a significant blockage by Marco Rubio on that related to his bill regarding Uyghur slave labor in China. And part of that is the- the
1: Wait, 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 explain that. Now, wait a minute. Senator Marco Rubio from Florida- is objecting to the defense spending bill because of slave labor in china
3: he wants to include a amendment that would put in language addressing companies that use are suspected to use uyghur slave labor in china Uh, and as a result it's put an interesting situation where you have one people asking how is this germane to the defense bill but two uh Apple, Nike, and others are on the record as being against this legislation. Uh, and so the, some of these Republicans who want to get tough on China, as well as the business community that they see as beholden to China, uh, are seeing this as a way to say, look, we're putting a stand in here on human rights. Uh, are Apple, Nike, etc., cetera, lobbying on Beijing's side when it comes to the American defense bill? That's uh, the message that they're putting forward on this at the same time I, I get the stance, I get the principle of it. At the same time, it just disrupts this very tight calendar to get our defense uh, spending package for next year set.
1: Is this the right place to address this? But maybe he doesn't have any choice. I mean, is, well, give me give me your take. Is, is, do you well, think Rubio is the doing ND... the right thing here? What's happening?
3: I think it's the right principled stance. And usually the thing is the NDAA is the, is the vehicle by which you can pass a lot of things because it's must-pass Legislation Again, considered a must-pass bill. A lot of things get uh, attached to it. That said, uh, know when you're not going to get the votes to, to get this done now. If, if we're at the point where it's blocking it and we're reaching the end of the year, it's time to move that to another legislative package.
1: Does he get it or not? Will Rubio be successful here or not?
3: I don't think he will, because again, the implementation of this of this way he's written it is, is something that's really going to be disruptive, and I, I don't think that the Senate. Okay, would, so would he move doesn't
1: get this. They'll go ahead and do it anyway without Rubio's uh, amendment. Yes. Yes. That's your call. Okay. Now, the, the one—I've only got two or three minutes here left, Dan, and I'm sorry, but uh, this is also fascinating. This particular defense spending bill has two hundred and. 50 billion or so in it as a carve-out directly focused on uh, China and basically competing with China. It's support for U.S. companies who are going to compete with China. Uh, And it also includes restrictions. And Chuck Schumer is really leading this charge. China is very upset about this. They're threatening retaliation. But basically, You know, for all that the Trump administration did to basically uh, uh, come back hard against trade with China and make sure that they wanted to level the playing field, the Biden administration has kept that up. And now the Democrats are leading that particular charge, and they're leading it with dollars. Tell us what's going on there. This seems to be one of the most areas of bipartisan consensus that we could Mm -hmm. see anywhere on Capitol Hill.
3: Yeah, so you have certainly those measures that in in defense bill that are related to supporting critical supply chains, addressing competition with China. Uh, there's other measures too that are actually going to conference. So they'll be supporting. There will be more money for the semiconductor industry, other areas of critical technologies that they see. Uh, you know, maybe not even technologies, but critical resources like rare earth materials. Those are all being focused on in greater detail for looking at one what are the ways that U.S. companies are beholden to China? Two, what are the ways that Chinese companies and investment in the U.S. is trying to get advanced technology, and how do we stop that pipeline? Uh, And three, ultimately, what is the political and military influence that China wields around the world? Um, But the, the challenge, again, in Washington is that Washington is in a very different position than this, than you see with people uh, on Wall Street or Silicon Valley when it comes to this. uh, How so? uh, Well, Jamie Dimon, you know, walking back quickly on his uh, Will Outlast the Chinese Communist Party was one example of it. But I also, you know, you see Ray Dalio on CNBC uh, going, you know, when asked on human rights in China, saying that's not really his problem. It's just up to the governments to be concerned about. Uh, You know, that's the... Uh, if as long as there's a buck to be made in China, why, why disrupt that?
1: Okay, well, uh, and it looks like this will go through, you think, with this uh, great quarter of a billion dollars to basically confront China, and that means we're gonna face a little bit more difficult trading environment with China over the next couple of years. I, I mean, I kind of have this sense, and but it's just a sense, Dan, that, that we've needed to do something clearly to confront China and their unfair trade practices and taking advantage and stealing our technology and and, and, uh, uh, intellectual property for years, maybe this is the, the time that we actually have to do it. It was never going to be pretty. Whenever we have to go and, and, and fight right. this fight, it was never going to be pretty, but, but maybe now's the time, huh?
3: No, it's, it's never going to be pretty and it's going to be interesting, the, the position that the Chinese are going to try and put our business leaders in. Uh, they've already actively lobbied American companies to, to try and weaken these provisions. You see the CEOs uh, speaking out as they do on this or, or not. Uh, sometimes their silence speaks more. Uh, here, here you see this uh, again, that we've talked about this, this decoupling being pulled from either side, and it's not pretty.
1: Dan, we're out of time, I can't believe it. And we did not cover what's going on in the Supreme Court, whether this super conservative majority will actually undo Roe versus Wade, and what that will do to the Republicans ability to gain a majority in the House of Representatives in November. So. We will, uh, we'll do that next week, if you will, uh, if you will be kind so we'll, enough we'll to table make sure that. we're ready. We're going we're gonna to table it. It'll still be plenty to talk about right. next week, and we don't hear from the court until June. But um, will Republicans who are looking like a landslide, at perhaps next November, be able to snatch that defeat from those jaws of victory? Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming back with two real estate experts, Frank Saul and Greg Economos. Uh, are our two experts in segment three to discuss trends in the real estate market. Is the value of your home still gonna go up? Uh, Is your office rent gonna get cheaper? Will anybody want office property anymore when we come back on The Farcast? Please stay with us.
0: Thanks for listening in on this week's edition of The Farcast. We hope you'll share us with friends and colleagues. In coming weeks, we'll have guests Stephanie Link, Surat Setty, and more. Now, this week's special guest and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. Joining me now, two
1: really interesting experts to talk about the real estate market, something that's been certainly in the background or foreground of this economic recovery post-COVID and in ways that we really haven't seen before, both on changes we've seen on the commercial side and uh, a boom in residential real estate. Greg Economos is a broker associate at William Ravis Real Estate in Naples, Florida. Uh, He is a lawyer, Uh, he has his MBA, uh, he has his uh, bachelor's degree in science and engineering. He was a senior vice president for Sony Pictures for a number of years and has his finger on the pulse of this bit of a microcosm here in the very wealthy Naples, uh, Florida real estate market. Frank Saul is the CEO of Saul Urban. Now, this is a real estate developer based in Washington, D.C. They focus on multifamily residential. Properties. He's also the past president and a director of Saul Center's REIT, which was a shopping center REIT, uh, largely. Uh, well, most, mostly, I guess, uh, based along the East Coast, but, but I think considered national. We can, we can get to Frank on that. We've seen lots of changes, gentlemen, in the real estate market with the great shutdown, the pandemic. Office real estate and properties have been vacant. We've seen really cheap rents in downtown Washington. I went down K Street a couple of weeks ago. There's a big sign up for 30 some odd dollars a square foot. 21st and K Street's big banner out. That property would have been $75 a square foot two years ago. It's now half price. So uh, that seems to be hurting a lot of those office real estate owners on the commercial side. Frank, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing broadly in the in the commercial real estate market.
4: Just give us your overview, if you would. Happy to, and happy to join you, Mike. So, look, you touched on office. I'll start there. Uh, you know, COVID has obviously changed the way uh, folks use office space. And so uh, there's a lot of questions about what does that mean for the long term for the office markets? Um there, there is a bit of a recovery going on right now uh, in the quality buildings, uh, but there is nothing happening in anything other than high quality locations and high quality assets. And so Those high quality, when you say high quality, you mean sort of
1: the A buildings that the would be AA- right, on K, right on K Street, right in the business district of New York? I mean, that's probably true in Chicago and other cities?
4: Correct, correct. So as an example, here in D.C. and Bethesda, we have three new office towers Uh, Two have leased up. Uh, They're just delivering large buildings. Uh, The third building is on the wrong side of the street. Uh, It's still a new building, and they've done zero leasing at this point. Zero leasing. How many square feet? That one's probably don't quote me, but three hundred thousand square foot building. So it's it's empty and it's it's empty. empty. It's empty.
1: It, uh, if you're the developer who built that building and you put together your group to finance it, what do you do now uh, when you have this, you've you clearly got a lot of debt to service, you've got a lot of cash tied up, and you don't have anybody coming in to, to start
4: defraying those costs. What do you do? You do anything you can to get tenants. So you drop your rates and you fill it.
1: And you fill it somehow to get some somehow, cash flow somewhere. somewhere. Yep. Uh, how long could that take? We said 300,000 square feet?
4: Oh, it could take years. It could take it could years. Take years. Yeah. How yeah. did the others fill up so quickly? Uh, again, they're, they're high quality new buildings. Look, tenants are, are shrinking, right? They're doing the hoteling. Um, yes. They're, they're, I think we've now turned to an era where many office tenants are thinking their workforce is a three or four day workforce. Uh, they're taking less space. So they're finding they can upgrade get a nicer building and still pay less rent. And they're doing that. They're, they're not walking away from the corporate office, right? We still need a place to bring people together, uh, but there is a flight to, gee, I can drop my, my rate and I can end up in a nicer building, which if my folks are coming in, because they don't want to come in, I better give them a nice place to land.
1: If you, if you are a developer, a, a large real estate developer, what are you thinking about in terms of office real estate? What does this mean for the downtown areas that are going to have less occupancy, less density, less foot traffic? What happens to the restaurant rents, all of the retail rents when they, I guess, have less, con- uh, less traffic downtown, not as much activity? Does everything kind of start a downward
4: spiral? Uh, yeah, as an investor and a guy who's built and developed office buildings, I'm not looking at them. I'm running away from them. You're running away from office buildings. Would
1: you be selling them
4: or trying to sell them, or is it too late? Washington, D.C. is a a 300 plus million square foot market. We've got probably 15 to 20% excess space. So that's 60 million square feet plus or minus. You know, that's that's the whole city of Austin, or, you know, pick your submarket. That's a lot of space. Yeah. So again, again, it's a tale of two cities. If you've got trophy locations and trophy buildings, you'll be okay, But it's not where I would want to be putting my dollars today.
1: And usually why Washington historically has benefited from a large government tenant
4: here uh, in Washington. Yeah, correct. And that is. Will they stay in there? uh, Yeah, I think they will. I mean, the government does tend to grow. Uh, You know, the D.C. workforce we'll come back and we'll go back downtown eventually this will be behind us but you've you've got really strong headwinds in the in the office markets
1: uh, i didn't mean to forget your mba from what university of chicago
4: uh, Kellogg Cross, kellogg uh, school
1: yeah kellogg school thank you Up very the northwestern much. north side I of town did, not the I south didn't, side i didn't i didn't mean to you know just i'm always so impressed that economos lasted that long in school he must have really liked taking tests greg <laughs> Now, I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Economos and Frank Saul happen to be two of my oldest friends since we were 10 years old and maybe younger. But let's go. Let's go with that. And by the way, folks, uh, if it's been a while since you've seen a picture of me, 10 years old was a long damn time ago. All right. Uh, Greg Economos, Naples, Florida has been a booming market, bit of a microcosm. Can you tell us what you're seeing in your market supply, demand and what's happening to prices?
5: So the problem that's happening here is actually supply it's kind of the opposite of the of the commercial market um, that frank was just discussing so people after the pandemic hit obviously they stayed at home so that changed what people wanted in their homes they wanted a larger home they wanted an office they wanted a home gym Um, initially prices were flat and kind of fell a little bit just after the pandemic when the stock market kind of went down quite a bit but the past, I would say year, um, we've had 35 to 40% year over year increase in prices. Houses are-
1: 35 to 40% increase in prices? Yes. 35 to 40, so now hang on a second. So a $3 million house is now $4 million It went up by a million dollars in your market? Four
5: four and a half, I would say, yeah. Wow, okay. All right. All right. And, Keep going. I mean, even the even the two bedroom, three bedroom condos are not staying on the market very long. They go on the market, and the problem also right now is that the inventory is so low, and sellers are getting a little aggressive, and buyers are getting a little bit of buyer fatigue because they put in four, five, six, seven offers and they get nothing, and that's really frustrating to buyers. So I think though, whether or not there's a pullback or a flattening in the next six to nine months, I think there's nothing out there to buy. So, you know, the agents here in town are getting a little bit nervous because without inventory, we can't sell. Right. So uh, I think people are liking the the uh, the area of Naples because it is open. It's very kind of low density compared to the urban areas like DC or New York. And uh, I, I believe from talking to other agents in urban areas like DC, that condos in downtown Washington like, office buildings are not as popular as bigger homes in more of the outlying suburban areas.
1: Huh. And the prices in Washington, Frank, and residential real estate also continuing to rise? Yes, same thing. And you, and you can't find supply. There's not stuff for sale. Is that correct?
4: That is correct. Up, up and down the, the chain, mid-market, high-market, uh, very hard to find a house right now. Tell, uh,
1: Greg, you, you talked about two to three bedroom condos. How much are those in Naples, Florida? How much is an average house sell? And, and what are your high-end houses selling for in Naples um, uh, right now?
5: Well, high-end homes, I mean, there are lots. They're going for $25, up to $50 million on the beach.
1: Wait, 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 wait. Houses are selling for $25 to $50 million? Yes. On the beach. Are they selling?
5: They are selling.
1: How quickly? I mean, those take a long time to sell. Those take a little bit
5: longer because that's a very unique market. I mean, you have to, in order to afford a $50 million house, you've got to be in the B Club, the billionaire club. You know, it's not just your ultra high net worth individuals who can afford those. It has to be someone with enough. And Boy, these I wonder what the living.
1: mortgage payment. I wonder what the mortgage payment would be on a fifty million dollar house. That'd be a big monthly nut, I would think. There's, huh? there's no
5: mortgage. Almost Uh-oh. all of these are cash. <laughs> I
1: was, I was actually kidding. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of yeah. figured that. So, if that's really the high end, what's your mid range in Naples?
5: Well, so downtown Naples is kind of the hub where people want to be. The further you go out from the beach, uh, you can get, you know, a home for. A million and a half, under two million. The closer you in, go into to Naples, then the more expensive it is. So a lot, just a lot in Old Naples is. I have one on the market now. It's you know over two and a half, three million dollars for that's a lot. Just,
1: for a lot, just for a lot. vacant lot.
5: Just for um, a vacant lot. Yeah. Uh,
1: and can you find a builder and can you find a contractor once you buy the lot?
5: So that's a big issue right now. We all say supply chain issues, but that's definitely happening here. The construction prices, as, as I'm sure Frank, you know, concrete, uh, to build a pool, to build a house, wood, trusses, everything like that. It's a two year process um, to build a single family home here.
1: A two year process and construction costs for a 5,000 square foot home, how much are you gonna spend in, once you buy your, once you buy your $3 million lot, how much are you yeah. gonna spend for a 5,000 square foot home?
5: It's going to range here from 500 up to 1,000 square foot, depending on the quality of the building.
1: Really? You could spend $5 million on building the structure? Oh, definitely. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of money out there. Frank, you're also looking at building in the residential space. That's what you're doing. But you're doing multifamily. You're taking a commercial approach there. Talk to me about where you're finding
4: opportunities and what you're seeing in that multifamily real estate market. Yeah. So, look at in a broader sense, uh, the multifamily is is recovering. So, we had markets like Washington that actually uh, emptied out a bit in COVID, uh, but leasing activity in the last six to nine months has increased, and so those those buildings are beginning to fill back up again, uh, which is which is really good for the city. Uh, the out the outer rings did not have that same issue, but a lot a lot of the Younger folks, uh, young professionals in town, uh, they just they just moved back or moved out. They paid their rent and didn't renew their lease. Right. that overhang is beginning to get chewed into. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, that's it for us for another Farcast. Thanks, uh, Greg Economos. Thanks, Frank, Saul, very much for joining us. We've learned a lot in this particular segment. We hope you'll come back. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back next week with another Farcast from Naples, Florida, And I'm so grateful to each of you for tuning in each week. Please share us on your social media. I'm Michael Farr. We'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for being with us on this week's edition of The Farcast. Michael continued his conversation with Frank and Greg, and we'll release that as a bonus edition of The Farcast later this weekend. Thanks to Michael's special guests, Frank Saul and Greg Economos, and as always, to our regular guests, Jim Urio and Dan Mahaffey. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Bar, Miller & Washington or Hightower Advisors, are not necessarily those of Bar, Miller & Washington, Hightower Advisors, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at Hjennings.farmiller.com. At we are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Join us next week and go beyond the headlines each week with the BarCast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller and Washington, LLC, is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC. Member FINRA and SIPC advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representation or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements, errors, or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Miller in Washington, LLC, and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates, assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller and Washington LLC and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.